Let us pray. Almighty God, you gave your only Son to be for us both a sacrifice for sin and an example of godly living. Give us grace, thankfully, to receive his inestimable benefits and daily to follow the blessed steps of his most holy life. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God forever and ever. Amen. A reading from the book of Jeremiah. Now therefore, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, concerning the city of which you say it is given into the hand of the king of Babylon by sword, by famine, and by pestilence. Behold, I will gather them from all the countries to which I drove them in my anger and my wrath and in great indignation. I will bring them back to this place, and I will make them dwell in safety, and they shall be my people, and I will be their God. I will give them one heart and one way, that they may fear me forever for their own good and the good of their children after them. I will make with them an everlasting covenant that I will not turn away from doing good to them. And I will put the fear of me in their hearts that they may not turn from me. I will rejoice in doing them good, and I will plant them in this land in faithfulness with all my heart and with all my soul. The word of the Lord. A reading from the book of Acts. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing No one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight, and neither ate nor drank. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. And he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Rise, and go to a street called Straight, and at the house of Judas look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying, and he is seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your servants, to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. 
So Ananias departed and entered the house, and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road by which you came, has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes, and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized, and taking food, he was strengthened. For some days he was with the disciples at Damascus. The word of the Lord. This is the Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to John. Glory to you, Lord Christ. After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias, and he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana, and in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee and two others of his disciples were together. And Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. And he, they said to him, We will go with you. And they went out, and they got into the boat. But that night they caught nothing. And just as the day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore, and yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. And Jesus said to them, Children, do you have any fish? And they answered him, No. And he said to them, Cast the net on the right side of the boat, and you will find some. And so they cast it. And now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. And that disciple whom Jesus loved therefore said to Peter, It's the Lord. And when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work, and threw himself into the sea. And the other disciples came in the the boat and dragged the net full of fish, for they were not far from the land and about a hundred yards off. And when they got on the land... They saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid on it and bread. And Jesus said to them, Bring some of the fish that you have caught. And so Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore, full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. And Jesus said to them, Come and have breakfast. Now none of the disciples dared ask him, Who are you? They knew it was the Lord. And Jesus came, and he took the bread, and he gave it to them, and so would the fish. And this was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he had risen from the dead. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Christ. I'm not going to talk this morning about the the Gospel of John passage, uh, but I do want to think about, as I start, like the different pictures of Jesus that we see even this morning hospitality Jesus with a barbecue for his disciples, and then a risen Lord. Give thanks to the risen Lord, for he is, he's good and he's powerful. Uh, I want to talk about a very famous passage this morning, Saul's conversion, but I want to try to talk about it with a particular lens. I want us to consider two truths, that Jesus is mighty to save, and that the church is the body of Christ. So let's pray. O God, by the preaching of your apostle Paul, you have caused the light of the gospel to shine throughout the world. Grant, we pray, that that having his wonderful conversion and remembrance, we may show ourselves thankful to you by following his holy teaching. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the unity of the Holy Spirit, 
one God, now and forever. Amen. So when I was a student at Biola University a long time ago, I took a class on the writings of C.S. Lewis. The professor of this class used it to sort of, just for a couple reasons, one, to talk about how awesome C.S. Lewis is and was, and also he wanted all of us to fall in love with literature and love of learning and learning more about God. He used an example that I'll never forget. He said that every time we learn more about God, it's like opening a door to a new room. The catch was that the room we entered was even bigger. Each time one learns more about God, the smaller one becomes and the bigger God is. C.S. Lewis, again, depicts this in Prince Caspian when Lucy sees Aslan again for the first time in this story. Aslan says Lucy, you're bigger. That's because you're older, little one, answered he. Not because you are. I am not, but every year you grow, you will find me bigger. The conversion of Saul might shake up our perceptions a bit, our preconceived notions about God. It has striking truths about Jesus' sovereignty and his church. It should have us all asking, how do I need to change my view of Jesus? And his church. When we look at Acts 9, it's important to remember who records this story in the first place. Acts is a sequel that Luke wrote to his gospel. Luke chooses his stories carefully. They give us wonderful texture to this overall narrative. So as we look at this story today, I'm going to be kind of referring back to other parts of Luke and Acts and draw attention to where this fits in that bigger story. Here in chapter 9, he focuses his narrative on three main characters. And that's who I want to try to spend time on with today. Saul, Jesus, and Ananias. First, Saul of Tarsus. Now, this is not the first time we've seen Saul in the book of Acts. He pops up at the end of chapter 7 and the beginning of chapter 8. The deacon Stephen has just been the, become the first martyr of the Christian church. And it is said very clearly that Saul approves of this. We even see that the witnesses who are part of the execution lay garments at his feet. What does that remind you of? Luke 19.36 says that as Jesus approached Jerusalem, people laid down their cloaks before him. This picture showed that the witnesses saw Saul as a person of authority. Luke is pointing out both the extent to which Saul opposed Jesus and his followers and Saul's role as a leader in it. So who is this Saul? He describes himself in these verses in Philippians 3, 4 through 6. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. This Hebrew of Hebrews, this Pharisee, he is a proud son of the tribe of Benjamin. Benjamin is one of the original 12 tribes of Israel named after Jacob's youngest son. 
And it was one of the two tribes that did not scatter and blend into the nation of Samaria, part of what was going on in the Jeremiah reading we were talking about. He is proud of his heritage. He's such a Benjaminite to his core that he even bears the name of probably the most famous Benjaminite ever, the first monarch of Israel, King Saul. Furthermore, if we look ahead in, 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 in the uh, Acts narrative in chapter 22, we see that Paul learned at the feet of Gamaliel. Pastor Christian referred to Gamaliel last week. He was the teacher in Acts 5 who advised caution on persecuting this new sect, the followers of Jesus. I wonder, could Saul have respected Gamaliel but just think he wasn't going far enough? Gamaliel, I respect you, but you are not being hard enough on these followers of Jesus. So the overall picture between Acts and other places in his own writings gives us a sketch of Saul of Tarsus. And so with that in mind, I'm going to go back to Luke again and submit to you that Saul is a quintessential older brother. What do I mean by that? Remember Luke 15 and the story of the prodigal son? The beauty of the story is that it's about two lost sons. It's not just that one of them is lost. They both are, but just one of them doesn't know it. He's quite certain this older son of his righteousness. There's a famous phrase from Tolkien's Lord of the Rings, not all who wander are lost. I wonder if we could say about Paul, not all who are assured are found. So Luke is the only of the four Gospels that gives us the prodigal son parable. And the story of a father and how much he loves his sons. Saul of Tarsus seems to be such an older brother. The father in the story accepts the prodigal son, but he offers correction to his older son, who resents the younger brother. The older brother is symbolic of the religious leaders who objected to Jesus. By including Saul's conversion in his story... Luke shines a light, so to speak, on the radical love God had for Saul of Tarsus. As his teacher Gamaliel had prophesied, Saul was resisting God himself. So, Saul is continuing his work. He wants to stop these followers of Jesus. So, he has his papers from the high priests. He's on his way to Damascus to do his work. But someone has other ideas. Along the way, Saul meets a person on the road. And I I don't know. I don't know why this is, but sometimes I don't really think about how specifically this passage says that Jesus is the one who throws Saul to the ground and eventually blinds him. Jesus appears to Saul in great power. And it reminds me again, Luke, of the transfiguration. Jesus has appeared this way before to people. And remember the one detail that Luke includes? He spoke with Moses and Elijah about, quote, his departure, which he was going to accomplish in Jerusalem. Luke starts volume two of his work, Acts, with Jesus' departure from Jerusalem. And so here his appearance is so significant. He has come back in glory to claim an instrument. In great poignance, he addresses the murderous zealot by name twice. Don't miss that. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? This repetition is a sign of intimacy and care. When was the last time you ever spoke to anybody and said their name twice? Not often, I guess. 
It always carries weight in the scriptures. Abraham, Abraham, Samuel, Samuel, Absalom, Absalom, Martha, Martha. Jesus knows Saul. He calls him by name. And the first sign of wisdom that Saul actually shows in this narrative is how he responds. Who are you, Lord? I don't know who you are, but you just knocked me over. And so I'll call you Kyrie, Lord. And Jesus' response is gold. I am Jesus, who you are persecuting. And these words remind us how strongly Jesus identifies with his people. He doesn't say, I am Jesus, whose people you are persecuting. Or, hey, don't mess with my flock. He identifies with his people so much he uses first person singular. And this includes us. A very moving, life-changing thing when the church is hurting. Jesus is hurting. The prophet Isaiah depicts the Savior as a man of sorrows. And I think usually I think of this in light of the suffering that he actually underwent. But I wonder sometimes if it also shows how much Jesus identifies with his church. There's so much hurt everywhere. So he is hurting. Saul has just learned that the person whom he is hurting, though, is also very strong. Very strong indeed. And the Lord will claim his instrument. So a few weeks ago, I was privileged to be at Church of the Resurrection, our daughter church up in Brooklyn Center. And during his sermon, Father Josh Moon referenced the fact that in early America, the, the notion of Jesus as king, especially a literal king on this earth, was kind of unpopular. Can't imagine why, right? As faith became more private, the notion of Jesus being an actual king became less palatable. We, we wouldn't be able to vote for Jesus. Well, I didn't vote for you, king. This way, you know, and then so folks started talking about making Jesus Lord of our hearts. And this way, as Father Josh said, you actually get a vote in finding a way to make Jesus king. Isn't that nice? Jesus gets to be king of your heart. But as we look at Acts 9, a picture of God emerges that we must reckon with. It's not that this is how he always or even often works, but that he has every right to work in this way. He is God. We are not. As we approach this narrative, it's worth pointing out how both the character of Saul and us, the reader, have the opportunity to have our picture of God expanded. We want to be in charge. We want to have the choice. The scriptures, of course, teach of humans having choice of confessing Christ and turning from sin. But the scriptures also give us pictures of times when people seem to have very little say in the matter. (laughs) People are brought to their knees by a sovereign God for his purposes. Samuel is called as a young boy who doesn't even know what's happening. Jeremiah wants to walk away, but has the fire in his bones. No matter how hard he tries, Balaam just can't curse Israel like Balak wants him to in the book of Numbers. We sing about a love that will not let us go. These stories and sentiments all remind us of an important paradox. The tension we see in scripture between our choice and God's sovereignty. John Stott renowned Anglican priest and scholar puts it like this in the way that we must affirm God's sovereignty. What stands out in the narrative 
Stott says, is the sovereign grace of God through Jesus Christ. Saul did not decide for Christ, quotes his, as we might say. On the contrary, he was persecuting Christ. It was rather Christ who decided for him and intervened in his life. The evidence for this is indisputable. Our God is powerful to save. So Saul, Jesus, but in case you forget, there's one other character in this story. It would be easy for us to stop at Saul of Tarsus. I mean, the colic I read at the beginning is a, a prayer in our Book of Common Prayer directly about his conversion. He ends up getting a new name, Paul. He, and he's known everywhere. He wrote 28% of the New Testament. Yes, I did look it up. He has a beautiful building in London named after him. And I think a nearby city sports his name as well. But if we stop with Saul, we miss a precious truth that Luke expounds for us here. Jesus again appears, verse 10, and gives Ananias an uncomfortable assignment. Rise and go to the street called Straight, and at the house of Judas look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying, and he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him, so he might regain his sight. Come again, Jesus? You want me to do what? It is hard to imagine the terror that someone like Saul would have brought to a room. I tried hard to think of a good analogy, but I just couldn't. Because Ananias sums it up pretty well. Verse 13. Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. A reasonable point, wouldn't you say? But Jesus has other ideas. Because guess what? Jesus is up on the situation. No, no, Ananias, you will do this. You will bring him in. He tells Ananias that Saul will be his instrument. Jesus gives Ananias, Saul, and us his work. Now, there's a beauty to Ananias and his name. His, his name is a Greek version of a Hebrew name. And the word at the center of that name is the word we translate, grace. Hannah is another name that comes from that word. We know that one well. His Hebrew name is Hananiah. And there is one particularly famous Hananiah in the Old Testament, but we know him better as Shadrach. There is also another Ananias of renown in chapter 5, and his story is also tied to the sacredness of the church. But that's a separate sermon. Like Saul... Ananias is also transformed by this encounter with Jesus, isn't he? He goes from justified fear to brotherly love very quickly. By verse 17, he lays his hands on this murderer and calls him brother. What a transformation. Indulge me another John Stott quote. It's a bit long, but it's lovely. I suspect that this laying on of hands was a gesture of love to a blind man who could not see the smile on Ananias' face, but could feel the pressure of his hands. At the same time, Ananias addressed him as Brother Saul. I never failed to be moved by these words. 
They may have been the first words Saul heard from Christian lips after his conversion, and they were words of fraternal welcome. They must have been music to his, e- his ears. What? Was the arch enemy of the church to be welcomed as a brother? Was the dreaded fanatic to be received as a member of the family? Yes, it was so. The scales on Saul's eyes fell off. His heart was free. Saul followed Jesus. But Jesus used Ananias to bring him in. The transformation of Saul of Tarsus contains two beautiful truths that I want to end by reflecting upon. First, as I noted before, Jesus is powerful to save. Note, Jesus is powerful to save, not us. Many of us worry about loved ones or dear friends who have not confessed Christ. And we are right to want people to come to Jesus. It's totally understandable and lovely. But let us remember this. He is the good shepherd. We want people to take refuge in him. The burden of other people's salvation is not yours. It belongs to God through the Spirit in Christ. Jesus expects us to be faithful witnesses of his gospel. But we are his instruments. If he wants to use your philosophical arguments, he will. If he sees fit to blind or knock a person down, we just saw that, so he will. If Jesus wants to use your love and prayer, he will. Take comfort in our Lord Jesus, who is powerful to save, and look what he did with Saul. Second, and maybe more radically and paradoxically, Jesus identifies with and uses his universal church, his people. And I think in some ways this is harder to believe than my first point. We see how imperfect she is. We see in her people who rub us the wrong way, have different views. On Monday, Thursday, Pastor Christian used communion up here to symbolize this. Sometimes when we come to the table, we knock over microphones, trays of cups. Sometimes we bump into each other. Sometimes it's pleasant. Oh, nice to bump into you. Sometimes it's a fender bender, as he said. But the truth remains. We are his body. She is his bride. Mighty Jesus could have done this all himself. He doesn't need us. But he commands us. We are his vessels. In Acts 9, we see two men, Ananias and Saul of Tarsus, who are brought into this work, into his work. We sing Amazing Grace, rightly, as mainly about a song of God's salvation through Christ. But his grace extends even farther. He calls a people to be his body. He identifies with us so strongly that when we hurt, he hurts. And we are his instruments. He uses a murderer to take the gospel all over the world. He uses an unsure disciple to welcome this murderer into the church. How will he use you? Amazing grace. 
Take comfort that Jesus, the mighty Lord, is using his church. Look how he used Ananias. Jesus, mighty to save, Lord of his church. Let's pray. Almighty God, we beseech you graciously to behold this, your family, for whom our Lord Jesus Christ was willing to be betrayed and given into the hand of sinners and to suffer death upon the cross, who now lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen.